The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, US Department of State, or the US government. Here on the EDGE podcast, we're taking a closer look at Education USA's global network and how that network fosters diverse and inclusive communities. To do this, we're focusing our attention on four very important letters, D, E, I, and A. In this four-part series, we will discuss diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in international student mobility. Through discussions on students with disabilities on U.S. campuses, the rewards of international student recruitment in underrepresented regions and populations, educational access for refugees, and recruiting diaspora populations, we'll begin to find out how DEIA really works and how we can best support its promise in recruitment, admissions, and education. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we're discussing the challenges and rewards of international student recruitment in underrepresented regions and populations. International education at its core is about exchange. Exchange, however, is compounded by logistical challenges and colored by everyday inequalities. For every successful student who leaves her city and successfully travels to the United States to complete a degree, there is a student without resources, separated by technology, and unable to have the same exchange. With these challenges, however, comes opportunity. It is an exciting time to recruit internationally and help to open the world to bright, hardworking people from rural and underserved communities. Listen in on this conversation with two Education USA regional educational advising coordinators as they talk about DEIA in their regions. Hello, Edge podcast listeners. I'm delighted to have you tuning in. I'm Louis Cardenas, currently based in the vibrant city of New Delhi, India. I take immense pride in serving as the Education USA React for South Asia. My role supports and guides over 50 dedicated Education USA advisors across six countries. Collaborating closely with the US Department of State and various US embassies and consulates throughout South Asia is an incredible privilege. We work tirelessly to promote exciting higher education opportunities in the United States. Before joining the Education USA Network, I had the opportunity to work in various capacities within the field of international education, from international student recruitment and enrollment management to student services and even study abroad. I've had my fair share of enriching experiences, and this podcast resonates with my journey. I've been incredibly fortunate to have traveled to over 130 countries, dependencies, and territories, and even all seven continents. These experiences have shaped my perspectives, and to deepen my passion for international education. Hi, this is Vincent Flores, or Vinny Flores, the REAC for Northeast Asia and the Pacific. My region covers Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Mongolia, and the Pacific Islands. I am based here in Seoul, Korea. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for listening into this really important topic, Off the Beaten Path. I. I'm thrilled to be here with Lewis, who I worked with as an Education USA advisor. I came to Korea as a Fulbrighter. I worked at a small college, and then I started as an Education USA advisor at the Fulbright Commission. I have been React since 2016. So I'm very excited to have this great conversation with you. Well, 
Lewis, you bring a variety of experiences to this conversation. And it, I worked with you when I was an advisor and you were an HEI. So can you tell us what does off the beaten path mean to you? Yeah, definitely. The neat, an off the beaten path destination to me doesn't necessarily have to be an entire country that's less traveled. It can also include secondary or tertiary cities within various countries. For me, places like Urumqi in China or Kota Kimbalu in Malaysia perfectly fit the criterion of exploring less travel destinations. And have you had any experience convincing higher administration to let you recruit off the beaten path? Oh, de definitely. I had a strategic approach that worked wonders when trying to expand outreach for the institutions that I represented. I adopted what you know, the most people have heard of is this big fish in a small pond type of strategy. That means I made it a point to visit locations that weren't off, that were often overlooked or off the beaten path, but that had great student potential. Here's how it went down. I'd plan my trips carefully, ensuring I could easily stop at these less visited locations while already on an established trip. It was all about maximizing efficiency. I'd spend a day or two before or after my main recruitment tour doing exploratory outreach in these new destinations. For instance, during my international student recruitment in Vietnam, I took the opportunity to visit Laos as well. And when I was recruiting in Thailand or Malaysia or Singapore, I would include a site visit to Burma. This strategy allowed me to open up new markets without blowing my budget. The best part was that these less visited countries were thrilled to have me there, and it generated quite a buzz locally. Since few schools had ventured there before, uh, my visits cons were considered significant, and I remember that these visits were documented either through social media posts, interviews on TV or newspapers, and even general um, advertisements. This way, I had this provided me solid proof when I went back to higher administration to justify the investment of these side trips as part of a, a main recruitment tour. So taking the big fish in a small pond approach not only helped me expand outreach and open up new markets for the institutions that I work for, but it also garnered some fantastic publicity along the way. Great. And can you talk about some of the challenges that you've encountered when recruiting off the beaten path and how did you overcome them? Yeah. How to get started was often the greatest challenge. Uh, having an Education USC Advising Center is definitely a fantastic way to overcome it as they can provide valuable assistance and guidance, uh, especially when, when going somewhere that you've never ventured to before. Uh, unfortunately, not all countries have an Education USA Advising Center within their borders. However, almost every country has a designated advising center that you can still connect with, which might lead you to get connected with contacts at the U.S. Embassy or Consulate. For example, I'll share a few instances of my own experiences. During my visit to East Timor, there, was, there wasn't an Education USA, USA Advising Center there, but the Education USA advisor in Indonesia stepped in and pointed me in the right direction. They assisted me in connecting um, with the U.S. Embassy in Dili. And the U.S. Embassy was so excited to have a U.S. HEI rep visit that they accompanied me throughout my entire visit there. Uh, similarly, the REAC connected me in India, connected me with the Bhutanese government officials when I 
visited Bhutan with, along with the community college. Uh, this connection was a game changer as these officials supported and facilitated our, our visit. The icing on the cake for that trip, after a long productive day of school visits in Bhutan, I remember being in the hotel lobby chatting away about our day, and all of a sudden a government official approached us with a message from none other than the mayor of Thimphu, the capital city. I remember our hearts skipped a beat, fearing that we might be in trouble or that we did something wrong. However, the message was something else entirely. The mayor was so overjoyed that we were promoting US higher education and visiting local schools in the city that they invited us to have dinner with his family, with him and his family. Can you believe it? I mean, these are the kind of special heartwarming experiences that leave such a lasting impact. So I do want to remind those listeners out there that if you don't have an education USA advising center nearby, stay open-minded, persistent, and keep exploring every avenue. Don't give up. Great. And what, what inspired you to go off the beaten path for recruitment? Yeah, I, I aim to break the mold and connect with students who might not have many opportunities to interact with U.S. university representatives. Uh, some of my most cherished memories are from engaging with students in countries like Malta, Mauritius, Burma, East Timor, Paraguay. These unique experiences have left such a lasting impact on me and hopefully on the students that I was able to interact with. So for you, and especially now, I guess, as React as well, what countries in your region would you consider to be off the beaten path? For South Asia, Vinny, Bhutan and the Maldives are certainly countries that don't receive as many visitors from the U.S. as, say, India, Nepal, or Bangladesh. Great. And we talk about diversity and inclusion a lot. So how do you maintain diversity and inclusion when, when you're also recruiting off the beaten path? Well, I believe it's crucial to have a well-balanced mix of public and private schools uh, that you're visiting. Additionally, I think it's important to advocate within your institution for increased scholarship schemes designed for students from underrepresented areas. Uh, in addition, you wanna make sure that you're catering to students whose first language isn't English. So it's essential to ensure that your recruitment materials are easily translatable, they're understandable, regardless of language barriers. You want to make sure that your materials are culturally sensitive, that they avoid jargon or language complexities that might not translate well. In addition, you know, I always tried to make sure that when I'm presenting in different locations that I always ask the venue or whoever I'm coordinating with to make sure that the space is accessible for students with disabilities. And if not, if arrangements can be made for students so they don't miss out on the opportunity to listen in on, on the presentation. I think implementing these practices can definitely create a, a more inclusive and supportive environment for all the students throughout the recruitment process. Great. And I think that's really important to not just get off the beaten path, but also realize that there, even within these communities, there are people that are underserved. And I think that what you did creates more demand. And even if they can't accommodate immediately, asking as a community again and again can open up more opportunities. Uh, so can you share some success stories of individuals from countries off the beaten path that you've that you've encountered that you've worked with? 
Well, there are way too many to share, Vinny, but most recently, uh, I can share a story that actually happened in, in this year. Uh, during an Education USA tour in 2018, I had the pleasure of meeting a bright student from Minsk and Belarus. Uh, the tour was a collaborative effort with Education USA and the American Councils for International Education. I remember the Education USA advisor in charge asked me to conduct a workshop on essay writing. And it was during that session that I connected with, with the student. After the workshop, the student approached me at the advising center with follow-up questions and definitely a genuine eagerness to practice his English skills. As with many students, his dream was to study in the U.S., but financing finances posed a significant challenge. We had a meaningful conversation and I couldn't help but be impressed by his determination and ambition. Fast forward to this year, and fate had a beautiful surprise in store for me. At a conference in March, I crossed paths again with the same Education USC advisor. Uh, naturally, I couldn't resist asking about the Belarusian uh, students' progress, uh, and the news I got back was just exhilarating. The student had achieved his dream and was accepted into a graduate program at a university in New Mexico. I was so overjoyed for him and, and all knowing that all his hard work and perseverance had paid off. The advisor and I decided to reach out to the student to celebrate the news and extend our, our warmest congrats, congratulations. The student wrote back right away, expressing his heartfelt gratitude to both of us for playing a role in his journey to the US. Again, I can't say it enough, experiences like these remind us why we're so passionate about the work we do in international education and witnessing the transforma transformative power of education and being part of a student's journey to success is just truly gratifying. It just reinforces our commitment to supporting students from around the globe and pursuing their dreams. Vinny, what does off the beaten path mean to you? So I come from this uh, from different perspectives, having been a Fulbrighter, being a Pacific Islander, and then working as an Education USA advisor and now as REAC. And I think one theme throughout my career was has, has been really noticing that there are pockets of underserved students wherever we go. And I think off the beaten path really means underserved students and going where we're not going. I like to think of it as if you're trying to sell the iPhone, are you selling it to people that already have it? Are you selling it to people who have heard of it? Are you selling it to people who have never heard of it before? So I like, I like to think that diversity and uh, reaching out to these communities, I, I, I like to say diversity equals opportunity, because we think of it not just as a sort of moral imperative and, you know, we need to do this to reach students, but also it is opportunity. Um, reaching out to students who have never been reached before, um, it, it's opportunity to, to diversify your campus for sure, but it also is numbers and reaching more people. So looking at numbers, I, I like to remind people that that numbers and statistics, they're just a momentary capture. So if you're looking at some of my countries, I can tell you that there are great opportunities 
but the numbers won't point, they won't point you to those islands in particular. Like I have certain islands in mind, but numbers are influenced by something. Statistics are always stimulated by something. And I think that's where we have to be the navigators and the people to, to reach out. So off the beaten path can mean, for example, reaching outside of top tier cities. And I like to say, famously, I said, when I was an Education USA advisor at the Education USA forum one year, you know, how do we reach students? Our numbers are going down. And I said, well, think of it as this Project Goose, G-O-O-S, get out of Seoul, because every recruiter was going to Seoul. Some were going to Busan, a handful were getting out there to other cities, but there are very large cities with, you know, thousands of people, like like over a million people. And, but everyone's going to Seoul and most people were going to international schools or foreign language schools or foreign schools. And if you think about it, that is the smallest demographic of educational institutions in Korea, for example. So we've done a few things. We've done goose fairs. So reaching out to top away from the capitals, away from top, top tier cities is, is, diversity or getting off the beaten path to me. Also, sports recruitment in Northeast Asia and in my region, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, they send in in good years, tens of thousands of students. But in some cases, in some years, fewer than 100 athletes to the NCAA. And you compare just relative to the number overall that they send, they really don't send a lot of athletes. And I think it's partly because people just aren't looking to these countries, which have, you know, they're, they're Olympic medalists and fantastic athletes. They're just not looking to them to find student athletes. So I think that's an area that's underexplored. So I think that can be considered off the beaten path, but probably the, the, the road less traveled that is closest to my heart are the Pacific islands. I think it is the most underserved region period in the world. And I think it is a place where HEIs will enjoy going and I think they'll find fantastic students there. So the Pacific is probably the my hidden gem in my region for off the beaten path. I like that. Goose, get out of Seoul. That's a great, great strategy and a, and a great mindset to embrace as you're ex- exploring even a country that's frequently visited. Vinny, what are some of the benefits of recruiting off the beaten path for you? So in my region, oftentimes it's being the first, being the first institutions, the first U.S. institutions to reach out to some of these communities. And there are fantastic students out there. When we did some of our first goose fairs, we did one of them at a school that had a Fulbright ETA. It was a public school. It was in Tegu and we had a, a like a, a solid turnout there's just a few schools and you know a modest turnout but it was the first time that any fair had really gone through that city and that community and certainly that school we had lots of parents showed up um, the, my at the time my my boss my my supervisor we we both talked about how surprised we were that parents were coming to the fair and not just students and we also just sort of on, on a side note, not necessarily our market, but students from the military base that were that was nearby that school in Tegu, they came by and the counselor came by and the students were they came to find us and they said, could you please come back because nothing like this ever happens for us so that that also planted something in my mind that, you know, our men and women in uniform and the people that serve them aren't getting served by U.S. higher education. So I think part of it is being the first. And like like you said, when you were talking about 
some of the things you did, the things were highlighted in the newspaper and on social media and TV. And, and that certainly happened in my region too. So being the first, being those first institutions to get out there is really important. Of course, some of the benefits are reaching fantastic students across my region, no matter how small the island, no matter how far away it is, no matter how underserved and undervisited it is. Uh, I have met great students who you could just put them on a plane, send them to a U.S. college and they will thrive. I worked outside of Seoul for eight and a half years. And one of the things that made me want to do Project Goose was I was in the city of Pohang and I, and I taught college students. I taught high school students. I worked with middle school students who spoke great English and you could have taken them and dropped them in a U.S. school and they would have been fine. But nobody was going to any of these cities. And I also think one of the benefits is that the return on investment could be quick. We, a really good example was during the pandemic, we did some virtual sessions for Fiji and we had community colleges and some institutions immediately get applicants from those really quick, those Zoom sessions. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's difficult. I, I love my big centers, but it's difficult to get that return on investment when they're so oversaturated, but in an undersaturated, underserved market, the return on investment, I believe can be quicker. It's the only, like the Pacific Islands, the most underserved are, are the only places where I can not promise, but be very, very hopeful for a quick return on investment. So that's, those are some of the benefits I see. That's important that you mentioned ROI because that's such a buzzword, right? Whenever U.S. higher education institutions are developing their strategic plans, right? What every the question they get asked, what's the ROI going to be? So that's that's definitely important. Something else that resonated with what you just said was the fact that you know even though we're so interconnected now through technology and social media and everything else, right? There's still plenty of places that have not received visitors yet from, from, from the U.S. So there's still definitely potential out there. And, and to think about that, that ROI. How can, how can one identify potential applicants with unconventional experiences or qualifications from underrepresented countries or regions? So, I think what's really important is first that you you show up when possible do an exploratory visit and, and i have to say that in recent years promoting particularly the pacific islands and more project goose or project goot get out of tokyo get out of any of the major cities higher ed representatives have been very receptive to it and administrators have been very receptive and you know it's up to us to provide events and to provide the connection but showing up is important so it could be the exploratory visit like you said, connecting the itineraries, connecting events, connecting with your big visits, and you know, just doing one visit that's a little bit again off the beaten path, or visiting one city where you know you're you're not sure if it's going to be a great ROI or if it's going to be have a great turnout, but you try it out because I think I, I like to think about it this way: that Korea is the number three sender, and relative to the population of China and India, that's a big achievement, and this market developed before we had the express train, before we had the internet. So literally we had people going on dirt roads, on buses in at a time where people didn't speak Korean or didn't speak English and HEI didn't speak Korean and they built this great market. So I think having that pioneering spirit is really important. So connecting smaller 
lower tier cities or smaller cities or smaller countries, places that you normally wouldn't visit with your big, with your major centers. I think that's important or, or, or don't just go on an exploratory visit if you can. But one best practice that we've seen, and this partly is because of the pandemic and also in the Pacific Islands, very recently, they literally lay down the the wire for the internet in some of the countries. And this happened in one of the countries where I was, that the internet was not so good and because they were literally on a ship dropping the internet <laughs> into the ocean. And as after that, we had virtual sessions with no problems. So connecting virtually especially in smaller countries where you may be looking for an institutional partner and whereas you would be in Korea or Japan with you know so many options some of these smaller smaller countries just have a few institutions that you can reach out to and it's easy to at least rule them out and check them out and um, so connecting virtually can be something connecting with education USA to find out if there are high school counselors and if you can get a session in virtually or just talk to them and say hey if I visited you could we um, you know, are there students that would be interested in talking to us? So I think those are some ways, but definitely connecting virtually is pretty easy, doing an exploratory visit if you can, but working with Education USA to find people who you can talk to, virtual face to virtual face is, is a one best practice that can really help you reach out to these smaller countries and justify it to your administration and say, like, I actually talked to the US embassy. I talked to people that have said it's gonna be a productive visit. That's really interesting that you brought up virtual engagement, even prior to stepping foot, right, or traveling. And maybe, as you as you mentioned, that's a result of the, the pandemic. And prior to, I know, my, my personal experience on the USHEI side, we didn't do as much virtual engagement apart from email. But now there's just so much more that you could do to gauge that level of interest before you do make then, and then investment and hope for that ROI at, at the end and exploring some of these off the beaten path destinations. And I think it's crazy to think that at one point, all of this happened with when people would just call people on the phone, <laughs> people yeah. would cold call a high school and say, can I visit? So Vinny, you, you mentioned a few countries already, but are there any other ones that you would consider off the beaten path in your region? Yes, any of the Pacific Islands for sure. Other than my big senders, my top three senders, you know, reaching outside of the capitals is you know off the beaten path for them. Reaching to underserved communities, students with disabilities, certain certainly maybe students in the arts, for example. Mongolia, I think Mongolia is a little bit in a weird situation that there are people that know that it's amazing, and there are people that are like, oh really, that's a good place to go. But if you look at the numbers of students that Mongolia sends relative to the population, just line it up. Go on Open Doors and line up the number. So it's anywhere between a thousand and twelve hundred in a in a good year, line up the number of, of countries that send about the same number and then check out their population. You'll see that Mongolia is a hungry population. You know, it's around 4 million or so, but, and they send, you know, around a thousand to 1200 students. And then if you compare that to other countries, they send 30, they're 30 million in population or 10 million or 15 million. So Mongolia is definitely a good opportunity. And then I think sort of, again, the, the hidden gem is, is the Pacific islands. Nobody's going there. And I would note that the uh, three islands in particular are pretty easy. They're very small Micronesia, the Republic of the Marshall islands or the RMI, and then Palau, 
these countries are under a compact of free association with the United States and they don't need a students don't need a visa to work study or travel and that's great but when you look at open doors because they don't need a visa the numbers are very low it can show fewer than a dozen students going in any year but we looked at federal student aid numbers because these students can do FAFSA because of the compact they can get federal aid they can get Pell grants and the reality is that these three countries collectively send over 2,000 students so that's a lot of students in the United States from these three tiny countries and they also have U.S. accredited community colleges so again you can explore virtually ask if you can set up transfer agreements and see what how the curriculum is and there are diaspora communities of pacific islanders all across the united states so the, that means that these students have support and they have families with money and they can they can actually get jobs and work and support themselves so it's a, it's quite a different market but they, they are there and they're ready to go and they if it's a, the united states studying in the united states to these students is not a far off dream they actually go they know people who have gone so fun fact if you want to know where the largest diaspora community of marshallese um, is outside of the united states most people will say hawaii or another island but it's actually arkansas so find me in NEAP, find me and I'll tell you the story behind that. But there are students already in the United States. And certainly looking at Fiji, Fiji has over 70,000 high school students. They are English speaking, they're doing O levels, A levels, they're doing the GSEs, they're doing, they're going to Australia, New Zealand, they're going to other countries, they're globally mobile. And they're also fantastic at sports, they're rugby world and Olympic champions. And there is zero U.S. higher education recruitment presence in Fiji. And then the, um, the island of uh, Papua New Guinea, it's on the same giant island as Indonesia. So the argument is, oh, they're very far away. But, you know, if you're going to Indonesia, it's on the same, it's on the same piece of land. And then the question always comes up, do these islands have money? Papua New Guinea, it's a population of between like 9 and 10 million. Somebody's got money and somebody wants to go. So there's, and there's zero U.S. higher education presence in this country with such a high population. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I love how you mentioned Mongolia too. I remember uh, being part of some of the first U.S. universities to recruit in Mongolia and, and going back to opportunities there. After one trip, Vinny, I remember I was working for a small liberal arts college at the time, recruited three amazing Mongolian students for a school in South Central Michigan, right? That were absolute rock stars. So there's just so much great talent everywhere. Vinny, how, how, how would you, how do you, how does one maintain diversity and inclusion when recruiting off the beaten path? Um, uh, again, I, I think going to the islands, for example, is, is one way because that is in itself diversity and inclusion. And I think avoiding assumptions for one thing, because the, the question I always get is, um, is do they have money? And the reality is people are going to 
countries um, just as far away, you know, just as expensive to get there and possibly less opportunity or oversaturated markets or, you know, statistics that are similar. But the question always like, do these countries have money? And and that that makes me wonder, you know, why are we thinking about it that way? So I think avoiding assumptions and just getting one way to um, maintain diversity and, and inclusion is, is getting facts, you know, getting and getting experiences, getting face to face conversations with teachers, because in my big countries, it, it can be difficult to go to some of my big centers and get a, a room full of 30 students that are interested in studying the United States. But in the Pacific Islands, I, I you know, I can't promise that return on investment, but I can promise you an audience. <laughs> we can, I've, I've been in rooms with 50, 100, 200 students. I've had schools open the entire school population so that I could talk to them about studying in the United States and students were there and taking notes. So I think avoiding assumptions that maybe these are small, that people don't have money and just getting facts, getting Education USA to give you information to make the connections so that you can you know, even get information from the embassy and justification from the embassy. And I also think taking risk is important. I think in any recruitment, even if you're going to a big sender like Korea or Tokyo, you know, Seoul or Taiwan, going to Taipei, uh, it's a risk. You don't know if there's going to be a return. So you might as well take a risk in a market that's that's not oversaturated. So I think taking a risk, not knowing whether this school is going to uh, be a quick return, but getting as much justification as you can. So getting facts, um, but understanding that risk is part of the job. It's part of our field. You know, we do fairs and we do sessions and we, we don't know if anyone's going to show up, but, but we're there. And we know that we at least want to tell people that we're there and we're interested. And I think when you take these risks and people maybe don't show up the next time they might, or they say, when are you going to come back? And I think it does send a message just like Lewis did when he did his visits. It sends a message that go reaching out to you is important to education USA or to your institution. So I think risk-taking is also part of that. I like that Vinny, take, take a risk, get out of Seoul, get out of Tokyo. All these are great catchphrases and, and mindsets, right? That, that one should embody when, when trying to figure out a game plan of, of where to recruit for the upcoming year. So Vinny, can you share a success story or two of individuals from, from your region, from those countries that you mentioned off the beaten path? Sure. And there are actually tons, especially, you know, with Project Goose and some of our Mongolia advisors have had, you know, great, really great stories on their social media. But I think I, if I can highlight a couple of events, we had, we had Dr. Wong from Stony Brook University. She visited the island of Micronesia. You know, we, we didn't have too much time to plan this out, but they wanted to do sort of a fair and counsel, um, high school counselor training. And, you know, the reality of, of a small island is when you do counselor high school counselor training on an island, almost every single counselor shows up, almost every school is represented. So I consider that a, a big success that we had one school go out there. So certainly there's opportunity for more to go and for us to provide more professional development and show interest. And they want, they honestly, they, they want, they want more. <laughs> they want them to come back. They want to do a more training. They said, can we follow up with this online? Can, can we do this session again? And uh, again, they met with um, hundreds of students and met the, um, 
president of the of the colleges there. So I think that was a great success, just kind of a, as a proof of concept that one school went out there. And then, you know, one of these visits didn't really shape up because an, an HEI reached out and said, can we go to Fiji? You know, I don't have too much time to prepare, but is it possible? And the reality is if you did this in one of my big sending countries, the answer would be no, we can't set up anything for you. We can't set up a school visit within like, you know, two or three weeks of, of notice. But our advisor set up, I believe, four schools on two islands, and they were very, the, the schools were very keen to have them there. They didn't end up going because the, the representative got sick. But I think that sort of rolling out the red carpet is one example of, you know, the success you can have when the market is undersaturated and you're one of the first people to go out there. Um, and again, we had virtual sessions during the pandemic. We had um, a series of five-step sessions and one extra one. And then we had a virtual fair in Fiji. And during that virtual fair, it was, it was during the school day. And we weren't sure how many were going to show up, but the Education USA advisor worked with the with the ministry, with the education ministry, and also with the teachers, with their network. And the schools let students out, whether they were using the phone, whether they were just skipping class and going to the computer lab. But during the school day, we had students listening in to our Education USA Fair. And from these two events, we heard from U.S. higher ed representatives that participated that they immediately got applicants. So, I mean, that return on investment is, is again, it's pretty quick, but it was, we were very pleased to hear that from virtual sessions that Fiji had applicants. So I think those are two, a few successes that we're pretty proud of and just kind of a sign of things to come, especially in the Pacific islands. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned being able to provide that additional service, right? You said rolling out the red carpet that you know, a lot of our centers would love to do, but can't in overly saturated areas or places, let's say like India, right, that is getting visitors every other day. It's just too hard to accommodate that request. But and yeah, a country like Fiji might be able to provide some additional services that, that overly saturated countries in, in the network wouldn't be able to. So that's a great, that's a great selling point too, many. Yeah, for sure. And, and the, you know, I say there's zero U.S. higher ed re uh, representation in student recruitment in Fiji, but there, that doesn't mean that there isn't other representation. Australia and New Zealand have a recruitment presence there. And just, again, I think showing scale here, this is not an education fair, but they have a, a fair for students. It happens every year. It's at one of the universities and well over 5,000 kids show up. Over gibber, a thousand high school students show up to this fair in Fiji, and we have no U.S. higher ed representation there. Yeah, that's that's that sounds like a missed opportunity. We have the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Lance Erickson to our podcast today. Mr. Erickson serves as a U.S. Mission to Maldives Public Affairs Officer. 
Before this role, he was assistant director for the Center for Slavic and East European Studies at The Ohio State University. Welcome, Lance. My name is Lance Erickson. I'm the public affairs officer for the U.S. Embassy to Maldives. I've been in the State Department for a little over 11 years with previous tours in Bulgaria, Russia, and Kazakhstan. And prior to joining the State Department, I worked for seven years in higher education at Indiana University and The Ohio State University. What aspects of the Maldives do you particularly enjoy or find most appealing? Obviously, when people think of Maldives, they think of the white sand beaches, uh, beautiful sunsets, and the, all the tourist opportunities. But Maldives really is so much more than that. Uh, the capital city, Male, is a bustling city that uh, is reminiscent of the busy streets and the back alleys of New York or Istanbul. With more than 1,200 islands spread out over such a large swath of the ocean, each island is unique. It's such an interesting history, amazing architecture with things like the coral mosques and just food that is, is some of the best seafood that you would find anywhere in the world. But what I really enjoy the most when I go to Maldives is the people. The people are just so warm and welcoming. It's, it really is just a pleasure every time I go. I, I just love chatting with people and, and making new friends every visit. Why should U.S. HEI representatives include the Maldives in their recruitment, outreach, and engagement plans. I firmly believe that Maldives represents a prime market for college and university recruiters from the United States uh, to include in their recruitment and outreach plans. Each year, many well-educated Maldivian students study abroad for their undergraduate and graduate degrees, often receiving government support. Maldivian students are highly educated and very strong English speakers, usually beginning English language from the very first grade. In 2022, more than 3,000 Maldivians pursued degrees overseas, with most of them selecting Malaysia, Sri Lanka, the UK, Australia, and Saudi Arabia, while only 23 decided to study in the United States. The government of Maldives offers significant support to encourage Maldivians to study abroad. The Ministry of Higher Education offers a limited number of President Scholarships and High Achiever Scholarships to the very top students in Maldives. Both types of scholarships fully fund degree programs abroad. In 2023, 17 students were awarded President Scholarships, while 138 received High Achiever Scholarships. The Ministry also offers a program that gives students loans that have very favorable rates and 20 years to repay following completion of their degree. For the most recent application period, the ministry had planned on giving 720 loans, but because demand was so great, in the end, they awarded 1,200 loans to students in Maldives. So when you look at these numbers combined, that means that 1,355 Maldivian students receive financial support from the government to pursue study abroad. And while we have no illusions that we will get all 1,355 of these students to attend, the, to attend school in the United States, we believe the quality of education in the United States should make us competitive. So if we can get the right information in front of the students and their parents, we believe that more students will choose to study in the United States going forward. How can U.S. higher education institutions offer distinctive opportunities or collaborations to lesser explored countries like the Maldives to increase the visibility of the United States as the preferred destination for higher education. 
when we talk about how do we increase the visibility of the United States or become a more preferred destination for Maldivian students, I think it's going to take some time. You know, other countries have been coming to Maldives for many years to recruit their students. And we've, we also hear anecdotally that Maldivians think that the United States is too far or it's too expensive or it's too anti-Islam. And I think it is going to take some time. We have to make sure that we're getting the correct information to the students and their parents, that it's accurate, that it's up to date, that they know what they would be receiving in terms of a quality education, a flexible education should they, they select the United States. And one of the, the best ways for us to do that is to bring recruiters to Maldives. And so we're excited about having opportunities for recruiters to come, meet directly with, with students and with schools here in Maldives. And I really think once we get that accurate information to the students and their parents, they will really see how competitive the United States is and how beneficial it will. It's an investment in their education to, to get a degree in the United States. And I really think we'll start seeing the numbers of uh, prospective students increase. Thank you so much, Lance, for joining us today. We really appreciate your perspective, and we hope to see more institutions visiting the Maldives. Thank you for listening to The Edge, and thank you to Lance Erickson from the U.S. Embassy to Maldives for joining us on this episode. We hope this will be the beginning of a conversation that will culminate in our in-person DEIA workshop at the 2024 Education USA Forum in Washington, D.C. Next time on the third episode of the EDGE DEIA series, join us to discuss educational access for refugees.